African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Thank you so much, Joalani. Now, let's zoom into today's subject matter. It's an issue that doesn't just uh, affect South Africa, but is um, a continental issue and also an international problem, the issue of gender-based violence. We know that the numbers have increased uh, of uh, gender-based violence cases, especially during um, COVID-19 lockdown. So the latest in South Africa is that the country's National Assembly has passed three crucial bills to fight gender-based violence and femicide. They are the Criminal and Related Matters Amendment Bill, Domestic Violence Amendment Bill, and the Criminal Law Sexual Offences and Related Matters Amendment Bill. Sounds very technical, so we need to break it down and try to understand what this is and how the process is going to unfold. Now, the bills were introduced in Parliament following a presidential summit on gender-based violence and femicide in 2018. Very significant year uh, for the fight against gender-based violence. We know there was a huge outcry from the South African population, especially women coming out publicly to actually denounce uh, gender-based violence and femicide. The summit involved uh, issues to fast-track the review of existing laws and policies to fight GBV. The NC Parliamentary Caucus has said that the bills will ensure that the rights and lives of women, children and members of the LGBTQIA plus community and society at large are protected and perpetrators of gruesome crimes given deserving sentences. Well, to help us on this conversation, we're joined by two experts who are really dealing with these issues on a daily basis. We have Lisa Vetten, research and project consultant at the University of Johannesburg, but she's also working in different spectrums in light of this particular issue. We also have Karen Reese, who is an advocacy policy and research officer at Mosaic, a training and service center combating abuse and gender-based violence. Thank you, ladies, for giving us your time we really appreciate it lisa let's look at this particular uh, passing of these bills how essential is it uh, in terms of dealing with the issue of gender-based violence and femicide from a south african context well, I think none of them are new leg- uh, none of them are new brand new laws. They're mm. all amendments to existing legislation. So that will give us some indication of how well they're likely to work to work in practice as we go forward. I think of the three, the National Register on Sex Offenders is probably the most insignificant and the least likely to have any kind of meaningful effect. But I think the changes to the Domestic Violence Act and the um changes to some elements of criminal procedure could be beneficial. I think it could be, could be beneficial if well implemented. And in fact, I think there are elements of the Domestic Violence Act that could be really meaningful. But once again, that will depend on how well they're going to be implemented, especially by the police. Okay, let's, let's look at what is being changed in the context of these bills. The Criminal Law um, Amendment um, Act uh, proposes regulating the, the National Register uh, for sex offenders. Uh, do we currently know how this register will work and, and what's the significance of a National Register for sex offenders? Well, to be honest, 
to repeat myself, I think this is a really irrelevant uh, change. Mm. We've had the register in place since 2007. I think just to explain to your, to your listeners, mm. we actually have two registers. The one is a child protection register, and then there is a national register on sex offenders. The national register on sex offenders keeps only the names of those convicted in a criminal court. On sexual, of, of a sexual offence, and that's very important to bear in mind. If you're not convicted, you will not end up on, on that register. Why I say it's inferior to something like the Child Protection Register is that the Child Protection Register requires somebody to name to be included if they've been found guilty in things like a disciplinary tribunal. So, for example, if you've had a teacher who's been accused of a sexual offence against a child, and, that, and the criminal charge hasn't been laid, but it's been dealt with as a, as a labor-related matter through a disciplinary hearing, and the teacher is dismissed. That teacher will not end up on the sex offenders register, but they will end up on the child protection register. So that child protection register is better because it has broader coverage and also recognizes, I think, as when we're dealing with children, we're not just talking about sexual offences. There are many people who harm children in a variety of other ways, through neglecting, abandoning, physically abusing, or emotionally abusing them. And it's very important that we ensure that those people don't have access to children either. So it would have been, I mm. think, better if we had looked at how do we take the child protection register and expand it to include those who also work with people with intellectual disabilities, because that way we will protect a greater spectrum of people. And I think the other concern is with university, was with university students. So the new iteration of the register says that um, you know, if, you, if you're going to employ anybody who's likely to work with students in a university or a college, you'll need to check them against the sex offenders register. And you have exactly the same problem there again. Is that, and I say this working in a university context and working with sexual harassment committee, committees, mm. the vast majority of cases do not go... Are not do not result in criminal cat, uh, criminal matters. In fact, mm. students and staff don't lay criminal charges. Mm. They're typically dealt with by internal university tribunals. So it actually means nothing in terms of protecting students to mm. say that you must check it, uh, prospective employees against the sex offenders register. It would have been much more useful to have compelled the Department of Higher Education, Science and Technology to put up a register so that anybody who is dismissed could have gone onto that register and you would have kept track that way. Or where somebody resigned prior to a disciplinary inqu inquiry that involves a, sexual, a sexually related matter, that you know, you, the university or college would have to inform the, mm. the, the department so that, that person could be noted mm. if they apply for work elsewhere. So I think what they've done is not think about what is the problem and what would be the most effective way to deal with the problem. I think what's happened with the sex offenders registries, I think there's a lot of public outcry and a demand for this as the remedy, mm. despite the fact that it's not the best solution. And if we look at in the, in the U.S., for instance, where we've had things like Megan's Law in place since 1996, which actually even allows for sex offenders registers to be made public. There's mm. been good research of the impact of Megan's, um, Megan's law. And the conclusion the researchers came to after a decade of monitoring it was that it actually really made no difference. And that it would have been better to have taken the money spent on those registers and put, and put them into more effective measures to try and protect those who are um, at risk. Mm. So that's why I say the sex offenders register is 
it's law made to satisfy popular demand, but it's not law that tackles the problem in a meaningful way. Mm. Well, we're going to deal with that in terms of um, law enforcement and judicial frameworks. Are they healthy enough to implement these changes? But let me come to you, Karen, in terms of, Mm. I know that you focus um, on the Domestic Violence Amendment Act. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that act um, and these amendments that are being introduced in light of that act. Thanks so much, Benjamin, and thank you for including Mosaic in the conversation. Um, yes, so Mosaic is an organization that focus, focuses specifically on domestic violence and abuse um, in domestic relationships. And the Domestic Violence Act was first promulgated in 1998, so it was well in need of review. Um, so some of the some of the main changes or amendments to the Act really bring the Act in line with other pieces of legislation. So um, if we if we consider things like the Children's Act, the Protection from Harassment Act, Older Persons Act, Firearms Control Act, you know those those acts have um, the Domestic Violence Act is now being brought in line with those acts, which is great because it can't be used then as loopholes as to how the the Domestic Violence Act it can't be superseded by those legislation. Mm. Um, so some of the the main areas that we've seen changes is also to bring the act up to date. So one of uh, there's a large proportion of the act that is dedicated to looking at forms of electronic um, violence. So the use of social media, the use of text messages, phone calls, where the court is now able to compel electronic service uh, communication providers to provide information that relates to to electronic violence or cyber violence. Mm. Um, that is that is a great advancement in this legislation because that can then be used as evidence in cases of domestic violence. Um, the other forms of changes that we've seen, and I'm just going to highlight some of the main changes that sure. we've seen sure. um, in the Act, is a movement to an electronic what they're calling an integrated electronic repository, um, really fancy word for a central, um, a central online space or electronic space where protection order information is stored. Now, this is a great advancement, and if it is implemented well, it will be something that will revolutionize, revolutionize the protection order system for um, complainants that often can lose their paper-based application. They will now be able to approach a court who will be able to pull up information, even if it isn't the court at which they applied. It also provides a way for the court to be able to check whether a, an, another order is actually in place against the respondent or the complainant. And what we found is that a complainant or a victim of violence will go to the court to apply for a protection order mm. only for their <laughs> the respondent or, or their accused alleged abuser to go and apply for a, a protection order at another court. Mm. And there hasn't been a way to really look at that. Um, the electronic system also allows for applicants to actually apply for a protection order online or electronically, which means that it can be done anywhere and at, on a 24-hour basis and be then considered by the court at the soonest possible moment. Um, and one other thing that I do want to mention around um, 
changes or amendments is the introduction of something called a safety monitoring notice. Now, this notice is intended for the court to be able to order a police station, the relevant police station that is close to a residence, um, especially in the cases of shared residence where a complainant shares a residence with the their their alleged abuser or um, and it compels the police to actually do regular check-ins, either through an electronic form of communication or visiting the residence. Mm. And it also affords police the use of force to gain access to the complainant should the respondent not allow them access. So some of the main amendments that we've seen to to the Domestic Violence um, Act through the Amendment Bill. Well, very interesting responses that are coming from both of you, Lisa and, and Karen. Mm. And I see Lisa is very critical of some of the elements uh, mm. in light of uh, uh, the, the National Register for, for Sex Offenders. And uh, you, Karen, are seeing some landmark uh, changes to the Domestic Violence Amendment Act. And I think these things have to synchronize, be synchronized mm. and work uh, hand in hand, and some of those loopholes could create some fragmentation in, in the system. But we'll deal with those issues after the break because we still have to deal with this criminal and related matters amendment bill, uh, which changes other uh, court acts. So we'll look at that after the break. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. 20 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. Thank you for joining us here on Channel Africa. Uh, this is uh, a station based here in Johannesburg, South Africa, an external service into the African continent, broadcasting in various uh, languages used on the continent. And uh, today, this is our program, African Dialogue, where we're zooming into three bills that have been amended to deal with gender-based violence and femicide. We're joined by Lisa Vetten, who is a research and project consultant at the University University of Johannesburg speaking to us on her personal capacity this time and also we have uh, Karen Reese who's an advocacy policy and research officer at Mosaic a training and service center combating abuse and gender-based violence let me come back to you Lisa before we look at some of these uh, contradictions and fragmentations in terms of synergizing these laws. I want us first to look at the criminal and related matters amendment bill. What is that for our listeners in a simple sense and how does it actually change how the court system and the justice system works? Well, it applies only to criminal trials, so it it won't affect in any way matters heard in the civil court like, for example, the Domestic Violence Protection Order. So we must just bear that in mind. It deals with criminal procedure. So it sets out how bail should be dealt with. It comments on how parole should be dealt with. It talks to um, sentencing as well. And it also talks a little bit to um, 
different questions of how you can create better procedures of testifying in court to the use of closed-circuit television cameras and the use of intermediaries. Mm. So what it's trying to do is, ma- is make, on the one hand, make the court procedure in a criminal trial less intimidating. So previously you had intermediary services really being confined to the use of children under the age of 16. Mm. So it's now extended the use of intermediaries up to about to the age of 18, and that's recognized that you know, there's been a previous loophole that you've had somebody with an intellectual disability whose functional age may be about 12, but their biological age is 30. Mm. So the courts have taken, in some instances, a very odd position in that saying that you're 30 years old, so therefore you cannot have access to an intermediary, mm. even though your level of understanding is that of a, developmentally that of a 12-year-old. So it's recognized and closed that loophole. And it's also recognized that some witnesses are incredibly traumatized and upset. And that actually to put them into a courtroom facing the person who is alleged to have raped them is to do them more harm. Mm. So under those circumstances, it also allows for those who are traumatized or otherwise very deeply affected to also testify via closed-circuit television as well as to use intermediaries. And then it sets out a whole range of different guidelines around the training and swearing of intermediaries, which I'm not going to go into. Mm. I think the other thing it does, which is really very helpful and I think could work well um, in conjunction with the amendments to the Domestic Violence Amendment Act, is that it has no longer allowed the police to grant bail in where where there's been an arrest performed in a domestic violence matter. So, you know, you, you have two two types of bail. You have police bail, which can be given by the police, and you have the, the bail hearing that you have in court. And that's often a more difficult process. Mm. So what had previously been happening was that um, the police might come and arrest uh, a woman with phone and complain. The police would arrive. They'd arrest him. A couple of hours, he'd have paid his 120 rand bail or whatever ridiculously low amount it was, and he'd be back at home, threatening and now perhaps even being more abusive and violent because the woman had had him arrested and she will now definitely not go back to the police again because there has been this failure in protection. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that the, uh, the police are no longer allowed to grant bail in case of domestic violence is really very beneficial and it could work very well with the protections like the safety um, monitoring notice, for instance, mm-hmm. if the police sit and think through process carefully. So I think that's very, that's very, that's very positive um, as well. And it also allows for situations where, where somebody has been convicted of a domestic violence crime and they've received a sentence of seven years and more, then the victim in that instance is allowed to comment on parole. I mean, there are a whole lot of other more technical amendments, but I think those are the highlights, um, which I will stick to so as not to get too bogged down into the yes. technicalities. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a very good way to kind of end the, the technical aspects of things because we're all just mm. trying to understand and wrap our hands around this. And let's not be too technical for our mm. listeners. But what's important, Lisa, is, um, you know, the fact that you have now lauded some of these uh, bills in terms of how they're going to actually be progressive in in their nature Mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with gender-based violence and and femicide but earlier on you highlighted the the, the loophole that you saw in light of the national register for sex offenders let me ask this question in terms of how do we uh, are there other loopholes that we can actually address as much as we are still making progress in this uh, legal um, framework 
you know, I don't know what to, as you may have gathered, I'm not a fan of the National Sex Offenders <laughs> Register. Hmm. So there's, so I think if I was given the opportunity to make recommendations, it would really be to do things like look at how do we actually take the Sex Offenders Register and connect it to the Child Protection Register to give that broader protection because we really don't want people with a history of harming children and people with intellectual disabilities to have access to them and to be working with them. So I'd be looking at how do you collapse the two into each other in order to strengthen them and then how could you approach higher education in order to say what kind of register could you set up that will follow what's going on in TVET colleges as well as at universities. That's what mm. I would really try and, and focus on. Mm. And, you know, and I think what yeah. would also be important, just as a last step, is sure, you know, the thing with the Sex Offenders Register is that it relies on a conviction. And you must never forget mm. that convictions in cases of sexual offences, depending on which province you're in, because some provinces have a terrible conviction rate, but the, but the average is between 7 to 8% of all mm. reported um, sexual offences, which means that it gives people a false sense of security. It's the minority who are going to end up on a sex offenders register, not the majority. So where we really ought to be focusing our attention is on how do we strengthen the investigation by the police mm. of sexual offences? How do we improve the medical legal examination, collection of DNA and the like that occurs in health facilities? Mm. How do we strengthen prosecution and how do we make sure that complainants get good psychosocial support so that when they testify, they're able to give their best evidence? They're not broken down and intimidated by through fear of what's going to happen. So I think that would be much far better because at the end of the day, the deterrent is not the likelihood of ending up on a sex offenders register. It's the likelihood of being caught. Mm. And if 50% of rapes don't even result in, um, in an arrest, you can see there's a lot of work ahead, and that's where we should be putting our attention. Mm. Karen, what are your thoughts to what Lisa is bringing forth in the discussion? Mm. Um, so I, I agree with, with Lisa, um, not just looking at the, um, the Criminal Matters Act or, or looking at the Sexual Offences Act. You know, looking at the Domestic Violence Act, I think we have a similar... A similar situation, um, you know, when we look at our legislation, I think we've heard it all too often. In South Africa, we have incredibly progressive legislation, but the challenge we have is implementing that, that legislation. So when we, when we looked at the Domestic Violence Act, we have seen good law, good progressive law, um, but the implementation at a very local level is not always aligned to the law. So while we can have these these pieces of legislation, if we're not monitoring the implementation and ensuring accountability at a very local grassroots level, then we're not going to see a change in the experience of violence by the individual who is the victim of such violence. Mm. Um, and and we've, we've seen this in many cases of femicide in the country where women have obtained protection orders and yet they still die with that protection order. So what is it that is going to change with this legislation to ensure that protection orders do protect? 
And that's where Mosaic is most concerned around this legislation. Uh, We're encouraged by the new amendments. We're also encouraged by the fact that the directives under this, um, the Domestic Violence Amendment Bill, have been extended to include other departments. For the longest time, the the onus has been on the Department of Justice, um, as well as South African Police Services. But this has now been expanded to look at the Department of Health, Education, uh, both basic and higher education, as well as social development and the Department of of Training and Communications. So this is encouraging because we now have the opportunity for this to become a really multi-sectoral approach. And that's what Mosaic would lobby and advocate for, is that we look at this not only from a police response, Mm. not only from a justice response, but this is a social problem. Mm. So how do we really encourage multi-sectoral approaches, and not just at a provincial and a national level, but at a very, very local level? Mm. Let me take a quick break, um, Karen. I'll come back to you because it it poses the question, and then how do you synergize um, the work that needs to be done? Already we have a very precarious uh, public service uh, um, that is very much, uh, when you look at load shedding in the last two weeks, you're just like, are they going to get this right? So the question is, is our law enforcement and judicial framework healthy enough to implement these changes to deal with the challenge? of gender-based violence. Do government institutions and officials have the capacity to adapt to these changes that are legislative because they need to be uh, implemented and action is so vital in that light? We'll look at uh, that particular question after our break. It's about the people. In as much as we are one continent, but I think realities in the respective countries are different. The IFFs represent a major drain on capital revenues in Africa. Because without the political will, no major efforts can be made. Please rate Africa's confidence in China. Are our people in safe hands? Nigeria, like other African countries, have been in bed for lack of a better word with Chinese. Jurisdiction and, and framework to what extent? African governments, African states are increasingly failing their populations. We have a very high appetite for foreign debt. You and me make Africa, and we have a job to do. African insights they show that constructively assesses all issues, infrastructure, and development across the African continent. Join me, Derek Mazarura, every Wednesday morning at 8.05 CAT. Together, let's find solutions for Africa. Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective.
Channel Africa. You are listening to us right here on DSTV Channel 802 on the audio book. Thank you for joining us as well. If you're streaming us on our website on www.channelafrica.co.za. A fascinating conversation uh, between Lisa Vetten from uh, uh, the University of Johannesburg. She's a research and project consultant there. Uh, she's speaking to us uh, in her uh, expertise and her own personal capacity. And we also have Karen Risi, who's representing Mosaic, a training and service center combating abuse and gender-based violence. She's an advocacy policy and a research uh, officer. And really much, not just being critical of these bills that are being brought forward uh, that are going to deal with gender-based violence and femicide, but being critical of uh, the system itself, whether it's the legal system, whether it's the policing structures, and also in terms of uh, the mechanisms of our government. Uh, Karine, sorry that I cut you off earlier on. I just needed to go to that break. But, you know, when you were speaking, I was like, do we have that capacity to synergize Mm. these departments with the justice system? Do we have law enforcement and judicial framework that is healthy enough to work and synchronize with departments and and and, and it sounds such a like a big 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 project mm. well benjamin call me an optimist um i i want to say that we do um i think it's where we need to to shift is the way that we respond So still we're seeing very siloed approaches to how we apply the law. Like this is not my responsibility. I'm as SAPS or police, I am mandated to do this. As justice, I'm mandated to do that. And there's very little um, coordination. I think we're seeing seeing it starting up now with the introduction of the National Strategic Plan on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide in the country. We're starting to see a little bit more intersectoral work, but it's really still based at a very national and provincial level. Where Mosaic is is advocating is we need to see this at a very local level because that's where the investigations are happening. That's where the response is happening. So where do how do we start connecting those local players? So Mosaic is really advocating for um, these community-based or district-based platforms where you bring together your police, justice, education, Department of Social Development, and your robust civil society um, that exists, whether it be community-based or organizations or just civil organizations that can really come together and coordinate a response to domestic violence and strengthen the system, because that's ultimately what we need. We need a system that is strong in its prevention and response, and that's where we're lacking. So if we could see these stakeholders and actors really working together at a local level, I think you would then start seeing not only collective response, but you would start seeing peer accountability. And that's where we start seeing a change at a very micro level, yes. Mm -hmm. But it would impact the daily lived reality of women who are experiencing this domestic violence on a daily basis. Mm. Lisa, do you think we can uh, afford the synchronized uh, solution that uh, Karen is bringing to the foreground and that is also envisaged in some of the changes within these bills? That's a difficult question to answer, Benjamin, because I think there are a lot of difficulties that face government departments in terms of working together. Mm. I mean, one of them is the fact that 
Obviously, we would like them to prioritize gender-based violence, but at the same time, we can't forget that they're also doing many other things as well. And so what seems to be happening in practice is that people get torn in lots of different directions by lots Mm -hmm. of different competing priorities and going to lots of different meetings. So it's trying to think about how do we balance all these priorities given all the multiple other things that people are doing. That's Mm -hmm. challenge number one. Sure. I think the other thing that's also really important is that you can see, and I mean, there is some interesting research that shows this. You can see stations where you have a very good police response going on. And so the question you want to ask is, why is it that at these stations, which have just as few resources as any other Mm. police station, just as little training, how is it that they can produce an effective, professional and caring Mm. response and others can't? So I would be quite keen to look at how we can do research that doesn't just look at the people who are doing badly, but the people who are doing well. So that if people can do well inside a system that is not very functional, Mm. what is it that we can learn and translate elsewhere? That's the second thing that I would like like us to start thinking about. And the third thing is, and I mean, this this does make me very concerned, Mm. is the bigger picture Mm. of the police. And I mean, I think every week you read about yet another scandal, mm. whether it's around PPE, whether it's around procurement for DNA kits. Mm. And the bit that really worried me was about two weeks ago, the absolute failure to... All right, so they took us... I, I can't say absolute because they did take um, some action in a minute number of cases. Mm. But the police failing to discipline their members who had been sometimes found guilty of killing... Mm community members, of assaulting them very severely. That's deeply concerning because, and I want to go back to the Domestic Violence Act. The Domestic Violence Act contains provisions that make failure of the police to comply with the Domestic Violence Act a disciplinary offense. It has to be dealt with as misconduct. So I am very concerned as to whether that's even happening if they're not even disciplining members who have killed other, who have killed members of the community or assaulted mm. them very badly. Mm. So I think we can't imagine that within that broader context, somehow they're going to create a little pocket of perfection around domestic violence. I think that's very unlikely. So I think there's a real need to be looking at the overall of the police in particular and the way they're running their disciplinary systems and their management and inspection services at the moment. Mm. Well, we've come to that stage where we need to to wrap up our program and and I need to get Mm. the final sentiments because this has been a comprehensive way of looking at this as much as we didn't look at uh, some of the the deeper uh, issues in terms of the other acts that could be affected by these bills, uh, Karen. But moving forward, I mean, we've, we've touched on some key critical areas in terms of progress and work that, that needs to, to be done. What are your thoughts also on the issue of political will in this light? So I want to, I want to put forward that I think there is incredible political will for gender-based violence um, led by the presidency. I think just looking at the expeditious nature that we were able to get these these amendment bills from introduction to approval in around 15 months, I think is something that we we don't see in South Africa. So I do believe there's political will, but I also believe that as a country, we, we are in very difficult times financially. We've seen that in the fiscus. 
Um, so how the bills will be afforded is what is of concern for us as an organization. Um, but the short answer, yes, there's political will. The more complex answer is how that political will translate into implementation on the ground. And that's where Mosaic will be doing a lot of monitoring and lobbying work to ensure that regulations are meet the, the needs of beneficiaries and that implementation on the ground is as it should be. Mm. Lisa, your final sentiment? Political will is not enough. It's clearly key, but it's not enough. You need to have sufficient budget and you need to mm. have a state that is competent and that is in a fairly robust position. Ten years under Zuma, I'm afraid, has left our institutions in bad shape. So that's why I'm saying political will is not enough. And in some instances, political will, because political will wants to be seen to be responsive, it rushes ahead and does things that, unfortunately, are not something that our state can currently do in its weakened position. And I think it's sometimes undermined by the fact that those very same politicians are the ones who have contributed to weakening state institutions. So that might sound a little pessimistic, but I think we need to be starting to recognize this is a complex problem. It isn't solved by simple solutions, or I should say single solutions, like only political will, or plans, or budgets. That's not enough. A whole lot of things have got to work, and I would really like us to start moving beyond giving single solutions and starting to think about complexities and systems. And how we get systems and institutions working again, which is a very, very difficult question. Well, Lisa, Sorry if that's not an easy answer. It is not an easy me. answer because it's not an easy subject matter indeed. Mm. So easy solutions don't really help us. But I think mm-hmm. the, it, because it is complex, obviously the, the answers will have a complexity to it. Lisa, do we know when this is going to be implemented? I, I hear that the, the president of the country st- still needs to, to sign it off. Mm. I suspect this will probably be fairly rapid. I mean, as I said, there is this pressure on the government to be seen to be doing something. Mm. Uh, there was the commitment that they would be enacted last year. So I imagine that they're going to come into effect fairly quickly. But just so, as a final note um, on that, the sets of provisions, especially in relation to the Domestic Violence Act, yeah. of regulations. So there are other parts of the legislation that will take another year Hmm. in order to come into effect. And that's good because that's the everyday rules that have Hmm. got to be written for the police and health workers. And there's some complicated questions we have to think through Hmm. there. Hmm. Um, And in fact, that stuff, it's boring because it's, well, most people think of it it as boring because it's the everyday nitty gritty of how people do their jobs. Hmm. But in some ways, it's the most important because that's where Hmm. you start addressing the local level that um, Mm. Karen was talking about. Mm. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thank you, ladies. Keep doing the the intellectual and and practical work on on the ground because it's much needed, especially the work of research and also the work of finding out what intricacies need to be unpacked. So thanks to Lisa Vetten, research and project consultant at the University of Johannesburg. Thank you to Karen Risi, who is Advocacy, Policy and Research Officer at Mosaic which is a training and service center combating abuse and gender-based violence. Thank you both for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Benjamin. Absolute pleasure. 
African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. 